Hello and welcome to What Moves Us, the podcast where we ask what moves us or more accurately what's going to move us in future. With the Rail Innovation Group's Johanna Randall and Liam Henderson we look at debates, themes and decisions of the minutes that will impact on the way we get about in the future. Oh hi everybody, <laughs> welcome to the podcast, well, welcome to the Rail Innovation Group podcast um, with me Deb Carson and uh, Liam and Johanna. Hi everyone. Hello. How are so, you? Um, Liam did a podcast or did an interview yesterday as far as I understand um, so we're going to kind of I think you guys are going to talk a bit about that I haven't listened to that yet so and then we're going to kind of reflect on uh, what came out of that interview and also obviously we can't not talk about the fact that we now have another prime minister so uh, true too I think that yeah, sorry, go on, Liam. No, I was going to say, I think that's true. So what are your thoughts on that? What, on the new PM? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, what can I say? Um, it's been a roller coaster. Um, I think that it does feel a bit like there are uh, there is a bit more experience now in government. Um, well, aside from the fact that, obviously, I suppose Rishi Sunak's not that experienced a politician but you know you sort of feel that he did a reasonably good job during the pandemic and everything and sort of understands the public finances so you sort of feel that at least we're not being held hostage to people that are um you know sort of taking enormous risks basically <laughs> like Liz trusted um, which obviously didn't pay off and there's men that now we're all going to be paying higher mortgages etc so yeah it feels like there is some stability but I mean there are still a lot of questions I have to say in terms of party unity um which I think are gonna I think there might be a little bit of a, uh, a hiatus where everyone feels a bit of relief um but then I think yeah it remains to be seen whether there is any kind of um any any real unity that gives us any kind of stability because there are so many things now that need that the government need to stop doing business on so that's you know that's where we need to get to isn't it i agree i agree johanna i have a question Uh, you're obviously based in scotland so is it any for us the politics is dominating for basically the last two weeks no one's done anything except watch bbc news or Sky News, or whichever news agent you have. Um, in Scotland, is it diluted a bit by the fact that you have two tiers of government? Um, no, I don't I don't think so. Um, I mean, I think it, the, the questions are always different. And I think, you know, I think just like everybody else in, um, in the rest of the UK, everybody's worried about the cost of living, everybody's worried about the uncertainty that all of this causes, what it's doing to our mortgage payments, what what's it's doing to our services, and um, I think, you know, just to add an extra layer onto that, um, there was, um, I, I only caught a little bit of it on the news this morning, I didn't really, really look in, into it, but there was, um, there was a piece that's just been published by the Scottish Government, which I think was, um, would have landed on um, Prime Minister Sunak's um, desk this morning, which was about the state of infrastructure and services in Scotland. Um, and it was um, what pricked my, 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 
my ears up about it because I was only sort of like half listening to, to the piece on the radio was that they were mentioning about um, the um, the Stonehaven um, derailment last year and they were and, and other infrastructure issues that are going on in Scotland which are also directly related to climate change as well and I know that I was speaking to somebody last year um, just after the derailment um, when they said that you can expect probably because of climate change for more of that um, those types of accidents to happen in Scotland because of you know more rain you know rain falling state of the earthworks and that so I, so I think you know that's so I think that's quite important, you know, as, as we as we discuss further about, you know, stability and, you know, what that means, actually, on the things that just aren't getting done, because we're all just, you know, excited by the Westminster psychodrama, you know, it's like, you know, season four or however many seasons we've had sort of, you know, since, <laughs> you know, the, since we left, you know, the EU or, or whatever you want to call year zero in, 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 in all of this drama that's been going on in our lives and, and that. So I, so I don't think it's that different. I think everyone has the same concerns, but um, I also, but there's a different, there's, it's more nuanced, isn't it? Just like, you know, if you were in Wales or if you're in Northern Ireland with a devolved administration is that every time something happens in Westminster that creates more uncertainty the, the call goes out greater for the vote for independence and I don't I don't have a feeling whether you know whether people want more independence and that but I think everybody just wants all of this to stop and for us all to get on our lives and things to go back to the way they used to be. Sadly yeah. days might have passed. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, I certainly do notice sort of like, you know, the, the nationalists are out on Saturday's campaigning and that. So, so it is ramping up. And of course, we're waiting for the, um, the, the ruling on whether um, the um, SNP um, Scottish government can go ahead with a referendum without the permission of the UK government. But I think from a positive point of view, at least, least Rishi Sunak did ring all the devolved administrations leaders and first ministers so i think that is positive yeah, step forward from um this trust who refused to speak to them um and i and i think as you say it feels as if you know sort of like you know the grown-ups are back in charge you know it's not about the political rhetoric anymore it's about actually recognizing that we all need to get along to get over this period yeah, yeah and we have, and we have to talk to each other yeah, I think on that he'll probably he will be more. Well, he'll certainly be more the tone of his tone is much more sort of re respectful, I suppose, and all of that kind of thing, isn't it? So, I mean, I guess my only worry, you know, with my HS2 rail hat on is, you know, basically Rishi Sunak is like a money man, isn't he? <laughs> and uh, that's kind of I was listening to that. I don't know if any of you listen to that Alistair um, Campbell's podcast that he does with them. Um, Oh gosh, Corey Stewart. Yes. Another so, podcast. Uh, yes. Yeah, sorry, I'm promoting another podcast, but it was it is quite an interesting. Alistair Campbell would be proud of you because he likes he likes promoting his podcast. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, you know, whatever. I, I I can't be bothered playing all these games about what you do and don't promote. I think it was it's interesting to listen to them, the pair of them, because they are they've got they're fairly opposing views politically, but they uh, they have some really sort of in, really good insight into into uh 
just I don't know just kind of deep politics I suppose and what's happened over the last sort of it's quite long you know obviously both quite long-standing um insights as well but you know <laughs> Alistair Campbell made a really good point that one of the on one of the ones that I, that I watched and I mean obviously Alistair Campbell is you know it's not everyone's cup of tea I totally get that but you know he has been uh in the thick of it ha ha so um uh, you know, he, he was saying, you know, it takes it's, it takes somebody quite special to actually be a prime minister. You can be really, really good at, you know, whatever in government, in you know, very in various ministerial roles and what have you. But actually, there's there's few, very few people actually can make a good job of of, of PM because it's, you know, it, it's a massive job, you know, and yeah. I, and I did think, yes, we have got a bit of stability back, but. You know, when Rishi Sunak was the Chancellor, he oversaw the scrapping of HS2's Eastern Leg, um, you know, yeah. and that was a step back as far as a lot of people considered a step back from sort of previous in infrastructure spending commitments. You know, they did fund, they delivered, he delivered Crossrail, but obviously all of that was before the state of the public, uh, as in, I mean, he obviously didn't deliver it, but he, you know, signed off the final amount of money, essentially, that meant that Crossrail was, was finished. Um, but obviously that was all before the kind of uh, complete carnage of the last few years. And, you know, I think that, you know, we're seeing now that we've got like evidence on sort of what's, what Brexit is bringing to the table in terms of our economic um uh, non-growth <laughs> um, how much how much of that decision on hs2 though do you think was down to shall we shall we call it the the treasury orthodoxy about delivering value for money or more about operation save big dog uh, yeah in the sense that backroom deals were done in order to shore up boris johnson's position because he was in a position of weakness at the time so then why would you cancel what he wanted to do? Yeah, well, it was, be, it was because of backbenchers securing support of backbenchers. Well, I see that as, I think at the time that was seen much more as the Chancellor having his way on the, on the money, because I think, you know, we all know, you know, as, as much as you can criticise Boris Johnson for all sorts of things, um, you know, he was actually a big, a big supporter of big infrastructure, big projects, you know, and, and all the rest of it, and was a big supporter of HS2. So, I mean, I think many in the industry saw, saw the Chancellor's hands on that rather than anyone else's. I mean, he did the same for, he's done the same for NPR, you know, as Liz Truss, you know, still, everyone seems to be able to say that word, quite, it rolls off the tongue, but, you know, actually, I don't know whether anybody gets it really that's in Westminster, in the ministers in Westminster, actually what that means. But he's, you know, he's always been a long-standing supporter of NPR. But then in the integrated rail plan, there was a scaling back of NPR. So that was when he, again, when when Rishi Sunak was chancellor. So it's hard to get a sense, but I just feel, you know, the, the, the public finances are obviously in a, in a bad way. Politically, he's got a really difficult line to tread because... You know, obviously Liz Truss wanted to kind of play to her, to, to one part of the Conservative Party and lower taxes. But in reality, as we've seen, it, that's just not going to cut it at the moment. But he won't want to be raising taxes 18 months before an election, will he? So, um, yeah. you know, do we he's, get got any, a, he's got a tough gig ahead of him. Do we get any signals because of the new Transport Secretary, another new Transport Secretary, um, 
so so I, so I think you know, so 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 I said to you I was doing some research in advance because I thought another new trans what another new transport secretary, and so I thought I'd just look at how many transport secretaries we had because it was kind of because um, I also advertising somebody else as well. Um, I saw in a um, in the Mobility Matters um, email that I get daily um, that um, he he put something along um, the the lines of. Um, the like the four billionth transport secretary I've had since um I graduated in the 90s or something but it's not it's it's not in the last hundred years there's been 58 various guises of transport secretaries which I thought was quite interesting so so maybe so that so that makes out an average of each transport secretary serves or secretary of state for transport regards of whether they're part of the aviation war ministry or whatever have served about 18 months but who do you think was the longest serving transport secretary you have to go back quite a far bit in history oh. I've, got, I've got no idea Mar no i i, I mean like you'll hear you'd have heard of him but Mar um it was marples but well done yeah. so obviously the beaching area what do I get as my prize? Uh, I don't know. What do you get as your prize? I'll buy you a drink next week. Perfect. <laughs> and what was it? He was, you know, so obviously oversaw the beaching era. And... Um, it wasn't and, the starts too in cars. So, and he was also pro-car. And I think the current, or the, the this week's um, transport sector is also more supportive of cars and road building then he has been supportive of rail projects so and I think this will be interesting for GBR because he is also voted uh, consistently against nationalisation or any form of nationalisation of the transport industry so will we see a further I'm mean, a further downgrading of GBR and the um, transport bill under his tenure than was indicated under the previous incumbents. Um, no, that's optimistic. Thanks for that. Yeah. Well, well, the thing is that these are questions that need answering, aren't they? Because will will we? Because it was already under pressure because we were just talking about treasury and the need to get some money back in. And you know, there's a whole list of things that the new, I mean, you know, the union issue, which we, we talked about last week, you know, I mean, leveling up is back on the agenda. What does yeah. what does that mean for transport? So does that mean you know some of the schemes will come back on? Will there be another review? Well the current will, will Brexit benefits go and transport bill come back? That might be too. But one of the things I thought was interesting is because there's this uh criticism of Rishi Sunak because of the speech he did in the summer mode uh, where in sat in Kent saying that the previous formula had put all the money up north into poor urban constituencies whereas he and he claims that he what he meant was that he wanted the money to also be in the south in rural poor rural constituencies and poor coastal constituencies which might mean that the south of England actually is allowed to apply for funding again <laughs> yes that was mentioned we had a um leveling up event in uh, leeds last week and that was someone did so mention that so what were the themes that came up at your event last week then um we talked they the themes were um well partly around how you make the case for infrastructure and how you actually sort of bring in the kind of needs of communities into the sort of green book you know 
um, sort of methodologies and what have you, because even with the new reform, even with the reforms to that, I think there was, um, I mean, we had a, a sort of an eco economist from Arup on the panel and she said, you know, it's still, it's still very difficult to make, um, you know, to make the case for infrastructure in, in, in areas where um, there's, for example, low, low productivity and that kind of thing. Um, I mean, we did have a, we had an interesting discussion about what actually what levelling up means. And I suppose in some ways that did play to what Rishi Sunak was talking about when he talked about, I mean, he, everyone takes the mickey out of it because he talks about Tunbridge Wells, which is obviously one of the poshest parts of Kent. But I mean, there are lots of very, very deprived areas in, in the southeast as there are in the southwest, you know. So it is, um, it's an but, interesting, but it's, a, you know, <laughs> again you've got that kind of that that then becomes difficult politically doesn't it to kind of but I guess that's the thing isn't it because it's because nobody has truly defined what leveling up means and of course leveling up can mean different things according to what you're talking about just it, sorry just sorry just to interrupt just, for the benefit of our listeners what are we talking about what event Oh, sorry. We had uh, I, uh, the High Speed Rail Group had an event in uh, Leeds called uh, on specifically on leveling up. So we had a panel. We had um, Henry Morrison from uh, NPR, and oh, don't ask me to reel off all the panelists. We had um, uh, Josie from Arup. But was um, there a what was the topic of conversation? Just leveling up, or yeah, it was how, it was how to sort of um, how transport is a kind of key factor in leveling up or needs to be a key part of the leveling up um narrative really so you know it's about why transport you know proper integrated sustainable transport is um an essential part of the leveling up story so that you know people can you know move around effectively get to you know get to um, areas of employment you know, encourage investment, which again sort of you know raises productivity in areas that kind of thing. So it was that kind of debate. It was it was sorry, I should have said it was transport. It was transport related. I was just looking at how Mark Harper voted on transport actually. Or, yeah, you, as you said, um, voted against publicly owned railway. Consistently voted against slowing the rise in rail fares. Generally voted for lower taxes on fuel for motor vehicles almost always voted against greater public control of bus services, almost almost always voted for higher taxes on plane tickets. It's probably saving grace. So, yeah, not particularly encouraging, I suppose. Mm. Although, I mean, like, going, going back to the whole levelling up and I was going to sort of like, you know, you know say about um, transport, and that is, I mean, like, I guess really, I mean, like, particularly for levelling up, is that one of the big um elements that um mark harper needs to sort out is the just really the whole mess that transport is in at the moment in delivering a basic service and i think it's interesting about you know that he's in favor of you know higher um aviation taxes because i speak from you know scotland because um i hadn't really thought about it until recently because um i thought it was i was just kind of going thinking about cost of living crisis but um I have taken, I'm going to swear, flying down to London more than I take the train. Yeah. And I hadn't really, because I, I obviously I have a direct train from Pitt Lockery, and but it is pretty much impossible to get cheap advanced tickets from either Pitt Lockery or Edinburgh at the moment. 
on on the line and of course what's causing it it's 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 you know i mean like it's just demand management because there are hardly any services reliable services on the west coast because of what's going on on the west coast the fares have been pushed up on the east coast so you can buy just pretty much standard tickets. You can't get advanced tickets anymore, or it's difficult to get them unless you know that you'll, you know that in three months' time you need to do a journey or whatever. But even then, they're not releasing the tickets in far in advance. So whilst it's a related problem that we're all hearing about, it's also impacting on the rest of the network and also increasing to the overall cost of living of everybody and and prices for everybody else. And that so it's really you know for the people of you know, on, that live on the West Coast, it's important that that is resolved for them so that they can get on with their lives, you know, and that it's also important for the rest of the network as well, because it's impacting on the rest of the network too. Well, I think also it just talks to, um, you know, what the, the thing is with, with, with rail and infrastructure generally, but obviously rail, when I'm talking about high-speed rail, which is, you know, there's loads of big infrastructure in, in that, is that they, you know, these things are long, really long term. So, you know, it's like that the, the, the taking off the golden link from HS2. That's had a, that's had an impact on connectivity and journey times to Scotland, hasn't it? So, whether that was considered, I mean, we don't want to go into the politics of why that, you know, all the hoo ha um, around why that. Why what did the Peter Henry report say about it? What did what? Sorry, the Peter Hendy report into connectivity say about it? Um, I, I can't. I can't remember. I think they just said. Well, I, I'm talking about what industry said about it, really, which was that they were really unhappy with because the trouble is in that connectivity review. He did say that it might not be the best way to get high speed trains to Scotland. I think Hendy said, but. You know, the thing is, if you keep scrapping bits of a project and then not coming up with a better alternative, it just leaves, it basically leaves the industry that's supposed to be building this stuff in a kind of hiatus of not knowing, you know, what 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 there's what's going to happen next. And it's just really unhelpful, isn't it? And I mean, it's unhelpful for the economy because obviously that's what industry are telling the government is we need a pipeline of work, you know, all the rest of it, because you know, without that we're going to end up losing you know losing skills um, overseas I mean the skills situation here is already I think becoming quite difficult um, from what I hear from from sort of industry colleagues so um, you know without all of that certainty it does have a knock-on effect so and also you know all of those discussions that we've been having with the Scottish government for the last I don't know 10 years about improving that the, that journey time and making it comparable with rail again it's kind of it's kind of put off you know it's like kicking the can down the road isn't it yes if peter hendy's saying it's not the best way to get high-speed trains to scotland well fine but then what is you that's going to ask what is the best way to get high-speed trains to scotland build it <laughs> <laughs> right but you see, I mean, I, but you see, that's the, the 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 kind of the point that I was making is that you know, 
that you know because you know and i started off at the beginning of this talking about the environment and infrastructure all infrastructure is important regardless of you know what it is but you know we had you know started off at the beginning of this year where a new hierarchy into the highway code was published where pedestrians and cyclists were were put at the top the top and that you know and that but you need a hierarchy of all transport and we should all be using the right transport to write the to, to have the right journey and this is the job of government to provide that infrastructure because I hate myself for flying I really do hate myself because I've always been somebody who loves to travel by train but it's becoming less convenient it's becoming more expensive when you compare it to other options available and it is absolutely ridiculous that we do not have you know 15 years after the opening of our first high-speed route more high-speed routes in this country because we're small we're like japan we should be more like japan you know in the fact that we should be doing away with any domestic air travel and having high-speed routes with mm. local routes connecting in well, we don't it. have to look as far as japan do we johanna i mean no. france look at what france is doing i mean france is banned Spain. domestic high domestic flights mm. So where there's where there is, you know, where you can do that comparably by rail and they're investing massively. They've got their plat, their fastest get things through planning. I do, of course, understand that, you know, France is a very different country in terms of size and, you know, geographical. But, kind of but as you context. say, it's political uncertainty all the time rather than just making the decision and getting on with it. Yeah, rather than keep revisiting cases and that, you know, because as we all know, business, you know, transport business cases, um, they they never accurately predict. So we should never let, we should never let actually the, the perfect getting in the way of it being just good enough because we know the benefits will come. Yeah. yeah, and I think, I mean, to be honest, I think that's one of the that's one of the um, criticisms, I suppose, that you could level at HS2 in a way. Not like, I don't want to be critical of HS2, but you know, if, you know, it, that scheme was to some extent, some might say, um, there was a lot of kind of vanity in there to do with like we must have the biggest trains, the longest track, you know, the, the highest trains. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I mean that's. Which to me, and I, you know, obviously this is just between us. This isn't going anywhere else, is it? Um, <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> that speaks to sort of like, but you know, boys with train sets. Do you know what I mean? Because you know, actually, you've got to be pragmatic about some of this stuff. And you know, Green Gauge, for example, has done some interesting work about what might be a good option for um, the Eastern Leg, which isn't. The, what was the original proposal for the Eastern Leg is actually about much more pragmatically connecting up the cities that need to be connected up with a mixture of high speed and traditional lines because you don't have to just sweep through with necessarily with and that's not always the best option but it's about having that pragmatic view and also bearing in mind the time scales you know um and I will I would I will say that actually Henry Morrison was very dismissive of the Green Gauge um uh report um at the leveling up event no, it was not his cup of tea yeah he actually um mentioned it in his panel speech and said it was um a load of rubbish but anyway um you know um it, it, i'm just using it as an example because you know actually though that what you need to do is bring those benefits quicker along quicker for people you know i think everyone always forgets that trains are actually for passengers 
<laughs> well, you know, I think we PC just, is we always just want to get on them. We yeah. don't care like about all of that. I mean, obviously we do because we all work in the industry, but generally people just want to get to a station and get on a train and get to somewhere as easy as they can. And actually, it is much easier to when the rail when the railway network is working well. It is so much easier to get anywhere. I mean, I'm a football fan, right? So we've been kind of slightly scuppered by you know, a combination of strikes and what have you for getting to games. And I speak to many, many football fans and we all, they all love the trains. You know what I mean? When nobody wants to try and drive to a game, get stuck in traffic, uncertainty about how to get somewhere. People want reliable trains and then they'll do, they'd use them. But the, the worry is that the trains, it feels like the railway network is becoming less and less relevant to people because it's not performing as it should for a number of reasons. We could so, do a whole podcast on this, can we? We could. And I think we should. But what's I mean, but thinking about the the interview you did yesterday, um, Liam, with one of our members, obviously this uncertainty is impacting on our mem on our members. Yes, I would say so. And it's a similar conversation you had. Sorry, we'll play the interview in a second, but it's a similar conversation to one we had a few weeks ago where we talked about. It, became, it becoming harder and harder for small companies to continue to engage with the rail sector because the uncertainty mm. and the lack of decision-making and approval for, for lengthier contracts is, I mean, you can't run a small business based on uh, proof of concepts and based mm. on trials. So um, that was an interesting conversation. And then... It was about, uh, yeah, is the UK the best place to be investing in your time at the minute? Great British Rail, GB. So, well, I think that, yeah. that's the thing, isn't it? It's not just transport. It's everyone that's suffering, isn't it? We're just not a good bet at the moment. Yes. So should we play that interview? Yes, I think we should. Hello, Mike. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am very well. Uh, where are you today? I am at home, uh, North Nottinghamshire, um, sat in my office. And it's too warm. What was your what was your home office before? It was your office? Um, it was a mud piece, a hole in the ground. It, we, we had it built during the beginning of the pandemic. We're having some work done on the house, so we thought we'll have a little office built in the garden, uh, which was a nice idea. Um, but it gets very, very warm in here. So. Right. I'm just going to have an image of you sitting in a mud hole in the floor. <laughs> no, no, it's actually quite nice now. I can't, it's, it's still not finished. That's, that's another problem, but I'm probably not meant to mention that on this podcast. Um, yeah. Right. So um, we are speaking today about Nomad Digital. So here's your opportunity. Would you like to introduce your name, your full name and your company? Yep, I'm Mike Butler, uh, Head of Innovation at Nomad Digital, which is part of Alstom Group. Uh, but Nomad Digital uh, provides IP-based solutions for the transportation sector from rail, trams, buses, etc. So we put intelligence onto vehicles so you can extract more value and extract more information from your rolling stock, from your bus, whatever. So we are very much focused on connectivity, but with the also being able to actually use what we have as a processing platform to host SMEs applications or solutions, our own solutions, so passenger information systems, remote condition monitoring, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we do anything on board to try and extract value to hope, hopefully improve passenger experience 
operational efficiency and stuff like that. Right. Comprehensive then? Very much so. Very much so. Yes. So obviously following the emerging market. What's that? Sorry. I said a solution for all customers. Very much so. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, we customers who are doing infrastructure monitoring all the way to ones who are just off uh, who just run buses for uh, getting people from A to B. So great. Yes. And they are based in, but they're based in Newcastle, aren't they? That is right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, are you so, remote or do you work back and forth? Um, remote mainly. Uh, go to Newcastle occasionally. Uh, but I have to say, I, as I came back to New, uh, Nomad coming up to two years ago in the middle of the lockdown, I've not been very many times, but um, I'm quite used to that work remote in my last two jobs previously. So since leaving Network Rail, I've not really been in an office, which people think is a good idea. So. All right, then. And when you do go to Newcastle, are you training or driving? Uh, train. Okay. Good answer. Right answer. <laughs> so we're doing this uh, interview today uh, because Nomad Digital is a member of the Renovation Group. So it's really to get you to know you a bit better. So we did discuss some potential questions, of which I'm going to pick the first one, which is, why did you choose to engage with us? Um, Because I think it was something we were lacking we um saw the membership of rail innovation group and saw the sort of representation and the companies you were engaged with and we are a bit a bit hit and miss when it comes to engagement with smes with other companies and i thought it was a brilliant forum for us to actually get involved with and meet new companies hopefully collaborate with learn some new things and uh, actually um yeah, be a bit more visible in this side of the uh, of the rail market. I think we've always been innovative, but we've not very, been very good at publicising it. Which right. I think the group gives us the opportunity to do that, hopefully. So, okay, so we did see you at uh, Innertrans with your very big, impressive stage. So that was good. But how <laughs> have you? Um, so have you found this helps your engagement or into Innertrans? Well. Being a member, going to Intertrans, doing those things. So you said you weren't, oh, yes. weren't brilliant yes. at engagement. So I'm asking, have you has have you developed that? No, no. I think there's been a couple of um, there's been some engagement with uh, some of the members, which has been on the back of joining in the weekly calls, which has been nice. But actually, some of the publicity and the exposure you've given us um, has been very good for us in terms of social media. Instead of having this the traditional LinkedIn post from nomad uh you've actually retweeted you've linked into some of the work you're doing so yeah invaluable because it also puts us into a area a, a new area a new a, a way of exposing ourselves excuse right. me okay well we'll take credit for all of that that's good <laughs> loving these answers <laughs> so as a more uh a more let's say sizable company do you you're obviously engaging through the group with much newer, smaller companies, startups. So do you find that you're able to, to maintain the pace of innovation as the smaller companies? I'm going to say basically, once you get bigger, how do you keep in innovating? I think we, uh, it, that's the difficulty. We, the, the, the bigger you are, the harder it is to change, become, ag uh, stay agile, be responsive to the market. So actually engaging with the SME uh, SME groups um, help us do that. They give us exposure, give us capabilities that we can not exploit, but partner with to offer new things to our customer base and new customers. 
Um, in terms of Nomad, yes, we've had to start looking at things differently. We've got to look at how we can add value to the uh, install base we already have, but how we extract more value from what is potentially classed as a passive sensor on board of a train. So this it has been difficult because the market is continually changing. I think we'll discuss it a bit that sometimes it doesn't move. It has wonderful ideas, but that never implements them, which can be frustrating for some companies. But we've continually got to evolve and look at where the market potentially is going to meet customer needs. Right. And I would say there's been op in the traditional market of Nomad, which was passenger Wi-Fi um, from when was it 20, 20 years ago? that was an easier probably an easier ask because it was a new technology coming onto rail so people wanted to have connectivity to and from the train it was addressed to an extent limitations on the mobile co coverage but after that what else can you do and actually what we're introducing onto board vic on board vehicles is a very powerful processing unit we're in introducing ip networks we're connecting sensors which were no, previously not connected and so we now need to look at what can we do with those sensors on board of the train to extract some more value to give the operators, the passengers, more, more data, which is actually going to be a benefit to them rather than just be a hindrance. Right. So you're actively developing new, sorry, you're developing new ways to use your products rather than new products. I think it's a mixture of both. I think looking at how... So if we look at how a, a CCU, a, commu a communication control unit on board of a train, which is the sort of central hub for connectivity on, on board, actually that's capable of doing a hell of a lot more. So it's almost like a data center. So we can look at what else we can use with that, but then we can introduce new products onto the train that can utilize that central processing unit to be the hub the intelligence the processor to start doing more and more on board of a, a vehicle not necessarily also a train it can be a tram it can be a bus as well so okay and then i'm assuming that those units can also go on sort of any if it moves you can go on it anything that moves okay and is that your background my background was uh, so i background has been infrastructure monitoring so i was always putting systems onto onto trains to try and extract data or extract um, information to look at the condition of certain assets so for example i did a project on gsmr monitoring i did video analytics systems the original video systems on board network rail yellow trains it was to try and put things onto a train to try and get a better viewpoint of how the asset was evolving or degrading over time. And so my background has always been putting systems onto trains or infrastructure to collect condition data. Right. Okay. So, okay. Right. So, and also then I guess the question is, does your innovation stem from competition or stem from sort of good thoughts? Um, it's a good question. I think it's a mixture of both. You have to innovate to stay ahead of your competitors, but you also have to come to come to your customer base with new ideas. They don't want to be coming to you telling you what their problems are. You need to be looking at where the market's going, where the problems potentially are, and going to your customer and saying, we think we can improve your efficiency by doing X. So I think it's a mixture of both. You've got to make sure you're ahead of your competitors, but you've also got to actually come up with your own ideas because you can't have everyone coming up with the same same things right okay i'm gonna i have a question that i'm just gonna bank for now which is about where the market is going 
But given you seem to, well, you seem to know how to develop it quite well then, is for the smaller companies, would you suggest that they follow the same process then, as in sort of have one key thing that you can build on? Or is it a case of find the gaps? I think there's it, there's two ways to look at it. There, there are gaps all over the market, but there's actually new ways to do existing things. Uh, so I, I look at a lot of SMEs trying to get into the rail market and they get very, very, very frustrated about the slow pace uh, of things or lots and lots of trials, lots of innovation money, but the actual market never emerges. So it's they've got to... Um, I'm trying to think of the best way of saying it. They, they've they've got to sort of not spread themselves too thinly and look at where they want to be, but not don't become too dependent on one customer because it could the politics can get in the way, um, people can get uh, can change, and next thing you know, they've got an idea that gets blocked and they go nowhere and they just drop out the market. So they've got to be very specific on what they're trying to achieve, but also don't get frustrated by rail right have you ever got frustrated by rail yourself oh very <laughs> 22 years of frustration and it's uh, luckily i've worked for bigger companies so it's there's a probably a bit more tolerance to uh to failure but if you're an sme with limited budgets there's only so much you can uh, can tolerate where before you think enough's enough i've got to go and focus on another market yeah okay so what would you say is a top tip don't be scared to collaborate because actually there's a lot of a knowledge base. There's a knowledge base out there that can help you with lessons learned. There's the likes of yourselves who have got a lot of experience in the rail market. There's a lot of big groups like ourselves are happy to work with SMEs and help guide them and help put even business plans together to help them develop a product. We can even help with the whole development of a product, but don't be scared to collaborate because the vast majority of companies are there to help you. Um, so going back to the market aspect is keeping up with the market and keeping up with the sector. Obviously, we've had the news recently that GB Great British Rails is paused slash may or may not be happening. We don't know. We have a new transport secretary yesterday. So <laughs> as the market is changing slash not changing slash, we don't really know what's happening. Um, do you see similar, yeah, well, I'm guessing that's, lobbing so much uncertainty in it but do you think that that is happening elsewhere or is it a particular rail problem um i think this the pandemic's created uncertainty everywhere there's budgets have been slashed there's uh people aren't willing to invest because of they don't know whether the passenger numbers are going to come back in uh, in a short period of time so i think it's a it's a problem which exists not just in rail, on bus, um, on all public transport, and not just in the UK. Everywhere globally, the market has suffered in the last two years. Um, I think UK, and I will give the likes of Network Rail some credit. Network Rail has always been, I think, ahead of other other countries when it comes to looking at ways to make the railway safer and more efficient. But like most companies, which are tied to the government they can be quite bureaucratic and slow moving so it's i think the gb rail thing is going to cause more uncertainty and in the short term is this going to stop i think it's going to stop investment yet again or it's going to port make pause investment for a, period, a longer period of time and i don't think I, I thought gb rail at least started to 
devolve the whole structure more of network rail back into the roots the responsibility onto the roscos to invest into the operators to look at new ways and innovative ways to manage their operations and i think now you're in, they're in limbo yet again so but that's going to happen i think that's happening elsewhere as well yes so do you work internationally Yes, we do. So no, uh, Nomads, uh, we've got customers in France, SNCF, Major One. Uh, we've got work uh, customers in California, CCJPA, Via Rail, uh, Metrolinks in Canada, um, uh, NSB. Uh, globally, in Australia, we've got uh, remote condition monitoring systems out there as well as being passenger Wi-Fi and uh, other systems. So, yeah, we're a global company and obviously we also tie into the Alstom uh, supply chain as well, which gives us even greater exposure with new rolling stock. Right. So where would you say the bright spots are? Not that we're encouraging innovators from the UK to go abroad, but where are they? <laughs> I, I, I've got to say, I think the US is the, uh, I think the US is a massive market. It's untapped. Biden's given, I think it's over a trillion dollars for investment into public transport in roundabout ways. I think their desire to try and get people out of the car is now serious rather than the Donald Trump years where they were, there's nothing wrong with a car i think america is an untapped north america is an untapped market i think it's there's massive potential in the metros on the buses within uh, some of these uh, major cities and you've also got the major operators like amtrak but actually you look at what's out there in the us road rail light rail whatever it's it's a i think a very very uh, new market or untapped market to actually start putting very good ideas that have been developed elsewhere and new ways of doing things and hopefully entice the Americans out of their cars. Oh, yes. Which would be nice. Progress. Progress, eventually, but yeah. So bringing it back to home then is if you're based, so you do have these international opportunities and markets, but then you're based in Newcastle. And I was wondering is, being based up there, does that, I say up there, I'm in London, does that, South London, um, <laughs> not a podcaster from North London, <laughs> um, does that help or hinder international, well, national and international growth and development? Um, I've got to say, we we have, a, the majority of people are up in the Northeast, but we do have uh, offices in Belgium, um, development centres in Belgium and in Germany. Um, we do bits elsewhere as well. But I, I would say on the whole, no, it may be in the very early days. Um, it used to be a hindrance in terms of keeping people in the Northeast, but Newcastle party town, so people want to stay there. But also you've got uh, Newcastle University as part of the, I think it's part of one of the key members of Ukraine, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of people up there, a lot of competence, and there's a lot of good ideas up in Newcastle. Um, and I think it, the, the danger is that the market's very, very buoyant at the moment. So people are looking for what's best for them. So it's probably it, it, attracting people is very easy. It's keeping hold of them. is so It's a challenge for all business at the moment. But no, I think nowadays, remote working, end of the pandemic, whatever, people are a lot more, uh, they can work anywhere. So I don't think it's a, an issue whatsoever. Okay, cool. And so that's so the working um, style that you have is very much flexible. Then I guess yes, yeah, very much so. Yeah, and it, it's got to be. And of course, because we're trying to support 
different time zones as well you've got to be uh so i think gone are the days where you have to force the whole workforce into sit in an office and look at each other longingly um, <laughs> don't do that anymore but they come for pub nights do they well yeah pub nights are good um yeah uh, yeah it's, uh, i'm too old for all that now so. what well, you haven't got your camera on, so I can't judge. But <laughs> you saw me in you saw me in uh, Berlin. I'm very grey. I went well. I went grey at eighteen. So there we are. I actually didn't manage to see you very much in Berlin because you had so many people you were talking to. So there was a queue of people trying to talk to you every time I went past. Man of the people, you see. So people person, people person. That's one thing my wife wouldn't say I am, but that's another. <laughs> Great. Thanks for your time, Mike, and we will speak to you soon. There we have it, Mike Buckler from Nomad Digital. I thought there were a number of things that were interesting to me in that. Um, the opportunities, particularly in North America, which I wasn't expecting because it's not the most dynamic. You don't think of it as the most dynamic rail market, but apparently it is. So that's good. Helpful hints for other members. Yeah, there's quite a lot going on in North. Well, there's quite a lot going on all over the world in rail. I think rail is exciting, but there is a lot of pro projects going on in North America, particularly Canada. And of course, yesterday, um, Arup won um, the contract to build four new state or to design new four new stations, for the California high speed. And I think so I think after many years, that's progressing ahead. So I think, you know, like everywhere, they're going to be looking for new innovations and technology. So that's great news. Mm. Is, I've got a feeling that um, Amtrak came to visit HST recently. Ah. Oh, that's interesting it's it's whilst it's a good news story if you go back to what we were talking about before the interview was the skills gap is it's not going to help if we start losing our skilled lay skilled designers operators to international projects we should it's be. a huge problem for the industry i think i think it's just really i think that's one of the biggest things that we need to really really get on top of and i think yeah that i think that's what is worrying a lot of people um, because we are seeing, we're one, we're being seen as generally less investable as a country because we, I mean, let's be honest, no one can argue with the fact that we must appear like a complete shambles over the last sort of six months. Um, so that doesn't help. Then obviously if you're getting into the detail, you know, there are, there's lots of, um, lots of programs that have been either paused or, you know, whatever. And it just does, it just, it just makes for that really uncertain climate that which, which is not, which is obviously why the Department of Transport having recognised this of now advertising the uh, amazing new role of head of uncertainty, <laughs> which, uh, <laughs> which come on now, someone must be wanting to apply for that. Um, what a job. What do you do? I'm the head of uncertainty. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what does that involve um i'm not sure um yeah it's <laughs> you can make it up though if you're uncertain can't you <laughs> shouldn't laugh honestly i was very unprofessional to laugh at that but you can't, i mean it, it is quite funny um yeah. so yeah. a couple of other things to note are is again in terms of top tips for other members is it is quite interesting it's the same thing we heard similar themes we heard before which is don't be afraid to collaborate and um well, the other one is don't become dependent on one customer. So you might work with a, a trade operating company or somebody else for a year to come up with a product, but then there's no guarantee that that product's going onto their system in the current environment. Mm. 
So you sort of have to be planning for the whole landscape of industry. And at some point you might end up with a customer or an investment or abroad. Yes. Indeed. Well, I think that's, I, well, I think that is the thing, isn't it? As we become less investable is I don't think, you know, if you're talking about you know, some of the expertise, because we do have a lot of expertise and skills, but that is moving abroad because of the fact that there are so many projects internationally. Yeah, we, so maybe maybe that was what was meant by Global Britain. But it was. Case in point is both you and I are doing consulting for foreign projects at the moment. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean, and France, have just Macron has just committed to, uh, I think it's three new high-speed lines in the yeah. next decade. So that's, I mean, that's impressive when you think it's taken us, it's taken us 10 years to practically get HS2 through the planning process. Well, of course, and of course, the serious point in all of that is, is that HS2 should have been opening two years this January. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. That was the original plan. Soft launch, January 2025. Yeah. Running between Old Oak Common and Birmingham. Mm. When mm. do you think soft launch is going to be now? In the 30s, 2030, isn't it? No, I think so. Yeah. Wow. And it's all and it's all been caused by constant reviews into the value for money case. Mm. Yeah, and I think yeah. I mean, I I don't know what the additional cost has been of those reviews, but I know that somebody that I spoke to recently about the House of Commons or the House of Parliament, I should say, not Commons, um, refurbishment for every day that that is delayed, that is costing the UK taxpayer one million pounds. Yeah. You can add that to the five million pounds a day it's costing to keep um, people that are just uh, coming over in small boats in hotels. Yes. Because that's costing five million pounds a day. So, um, yeah, there are. Of course, the answer to that is to send them to Rwanda. And other places, because Rishi Sunak is not just, he is fully supportive of the Rwanda policy and he actually wants to actively look for other partners to send uh, people to. So, so whilst this not might seem relevant to transport, it is taking um, funding away on what could be um, used to um, to spend on infrastructure. Oh, yes, exactly. Build, and, build back better. As well, the there's a distraction goes. from what we need to be doing as a country. Yeah, yeah, it is. But again, it's one of those politically sort of difficult, toxic things that you know is. It's hard to it's hard to resolve and, and, and not helped, obviously, by Brexit and, you know, challenges of relationships with um, our French friends. Right. So, so uh, just before we sign off, we have a new transport secretary. We have a new I think it's now called an autumn statement on November 7th or 17th. So don't have an um, HS2 minister. No. What are you hoping for in the announcement on the 17th or what are you dreading? Dead. Uh, well, bearing in mind my previous, uh, lots of my previous work was done in local government and just generally my sort of, with my equality hat on, I'm dreading a return to any kind of austerity. Okay. And hoping for? Uh, well, I'm hoping for some sort of pragmatism. What I'm really hoping for is that somebody gets behind, well, this is going to sound political because obviously this is something that the Labour Party have actually talked about, but I think we need to really, really commit properly to our, you know, to, to tackling climate change. 
and that is very very relevant to transport because transport is the most polluting bit of the country so we need to commit to encouraging people back onto non-polluting forms of transport and that does is not can I say again, not solved by people just going out and buying electric cars. That is not going to solve the problem. Right. It isn't actually that sustainable to be driving around in an electric car. Great. Deb, Dot, Deb, Johanna. So I would I would agree with both of what, what Deb said, Alvin. Like I think I do I, I fear for another round of austerity, um, not just for um, people that can little afford it, but also in terms of what that means in terms of investment for our country. Because, and I think I hope, I hope for a pro-rail Secretary of State, and that we'll get that there will be some good negotiations between the Department of Transport and Treasury for the autumn statement that we'll see continued commitment to hs2 and maybe putting the legs back on <laughs> <laughs> um the go ahead for um east west rail because i think that is also vital and also part of leveling up and meeting our climate goals and controversially because i'm the same as deb's i don't think electric vehicles or hydrogen or any of that answer i think it is all more public transport so i'd actually like to see any new investment in in roads stopped and we only commit to maintaining okay what do you think liam what would you like to see <laughs> Uh, I think I would like to see more of a um, an understanding that investment in small-scale public transport schemes and active travel schemes does have economic return. If you put on regular reliable bus services from villages to towns, people can go and have opportunities and jobs and create wealth that way. Yes. And, and perhaps what we need, this is very radical, perhaps what we need is a national transport strategy. Yeah, what? Have, have we not said that before? Surely not. I mean, that is radical, man. <laughs> right. <laughs> I love you and leave you. Good chat. Good to chat, guys. Thanks for listening to another episode of What Moves Us. We hope we moved you. For more episodes, you'll definitely want to subscribe to our channel. Until next time.